You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, please join me in a word of prayer. Eternal and holy God, we assemble this Lord's Day to worship you, who is most worthy of our praise and adoration. We tremble at your greatness, and we cannot even begin to grasp the vastness of your power and wisdom that knows no end. Sovereign Lord, before you formed us in the womb, you knew us. And before we were born, you set us apart. From eternity past, you have set your love upon us. This love is too wonderful for us to conceive. For who we are and what did we ever do to be the object of your love? We cannot give an answer but this. Amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for showing us favor and mercy, though we were undeserving and unworthy. Lord, would you make us to be a church that daily experiences your grace, the sweetness and sufficiency of your grace. Make us to be a church that preaches your grace, the free offer of salvation and the gospel of Christ. And make us to be a church that grows in grace, by which we grow in holiness of life and love. And may your grace be felt now with those, our brothers and sisters who are sick or ill in the hospital. Now, as we incline our hearts to the preaching of your word, we humbly rely on the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit. Illuminate your word to us and reveal to us wonderful and heavenly realities. We pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we continue in our sermon series through Ephesians. Please open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians, the first chapter of Ephesians. And we'll be looking at verses 4 to 6. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one He loves. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. Well, our text today leads us to a rather controversial topic that many pastors would find difficult or even nervous to talk about. It's a topic that many people find very unusual and even uncomfortable. It's a topic that has caused much division and debate 
among Christians. And that topic is predestination, which refers to the biblical teaching that God, before the creation of the world, chooses and foreordains the people that he will save. To be sure, this is a very difficult topic. But it is not a topic that we can simply ignore or avoid. It's, it's written right here as we are continuing in this series through Ephesians. And most of all the great theologians and Bible teachers of church history, such as Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Tyndale, Edwards, Spurgeon, just to name a few, they never shied away from teaching this difficult doctrine because they saw it as a beautiful and glorious doctrine of grace. You know, myself, when I was a new and young Christian, I despised the idea of predestination. The idea that God sovereignly chooses and predestines some people unto salvation sounded really unfair. And so I read many books and watched many debates to try to find the best objections and arguments against this doctrine of predestination. And actually, as I was preparing for this sermon, I went back to read through my prayer journals and diary entries from many years ago to try to trace the evolution of my thoughts on this particular subject. And let me tell you, there was a lot of internal conflict and battle. A lot of tears shed, a lot of sleepless nights as I wrestled with this doctrine. You see, the doctrine of predestination was not only difficult for me to understand, but also deeply personal to me. And I've had to wrestle with it for a very long time. But over many years of study and careful reflection, it was quite a surprise that my views on predestination began to change. This doctrine that I once hated so much began to appear most beautiful and glorious. This doctrine that I once found so uncomfortable became a great source of comfort, a great source of assurance for me. And that's my prayer and my hope for you today, that the doctrine of predestination will not leave you more confused, but that it will become an anchor for your soul that brings you comfort and assurance. And before we begin the exposition into the text before us, I want to share just three clarifying points about predestination. Firstly, predestination is biblical. It's in the Bible. Contrary to popular belief, the word predestination was not invented by John Calvin. But the word is found all throughout the New Testament and also in verse 5 of our text that we just read a moment ago. 
if you're a Christian and you read the Bible, predestination is unavoidable. You will run into it at some point. Every Christian denomination has some kind of teaching or understanding of predestination. It is a biblical doctrine, and it is God's idea found in God's word. Secondly, predestination is misunderstood. It was, and it is, and it will be misunderstood by many well-intentioned Christians. Such was the case for me when I was a new believer. I used to think that if we believe in predestination, we would have to forfeit the idea of human free will. I mean, if God determines the outcome, we would not be responsible for our decisions and our actions, right? But since then, I recognized that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over everything, including me, while still affirming human free will and responsibility. God's sovereignty and human free will is entirely compatible. They coexist in this universe. I also used to think that if it's true that God chose some people before the creation of the world unto salvation, that means, or that must mean, that God has chosen other people to damnation. But since then, I recognized that the Bible teaches that God does not ever determine people to go to hell. The offer of free grace in the gospel is offered to anyone who would believe, anyone who would believe in Christ. And if a person ever goes to hell, it is because of their own sin and their own unrepentant and unbelieving heart. However, no one can come to repent and believe unless God changes their hearts by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. For some, God actively works to change their hearts and enables them to believe in Him, while for others, God passes over them and leaves them to their own sinful and stubborn disposition. Of course, the question is then, why does God not regenerate and save everybody? That's a big question, right? Well, this is a challenge for every Christian, regardless of their view on predestination. The fact of the matter is, A, God desires to save everybody, right? B, God has the power to save everybody, to regenerate everyone's heart, change everyone's heart so that they can believe. God has the power to do that. But see, God does not save everybody. 
The Bible does not teach universal salvation. But Jesus says, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And so this leads me to my next point. Thirdly, predestination is mysterious. It's mysterious. It is mysterious in the sense that we cannot fully and entirely understand it. Now, that's not to say that we cannot understand it at all. We understand the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ and the hypostatic union. We understand the doctrine of incarnation and so forth. But there will always be a sense of mystery in all these wonderful doctrines. That's why they are wonderful. It causes us to, to wonder. And that's exactly what we should expect because our subject of study is God, who is altogether transcendent and beyond us. We can only understand these wonderful doctrines to the degree that our finite minds can comprehend and to the degree of how much the scriptures, the Bible, reveals to us. Our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the infinite God. It's just not possible. If we could, then we would be God. But God is God and we are not. And so we need to accept our limitations and trust God even when we don't fully understand him. And that's okay. Moreover, we do not have the liberty to presume and speculate beyond what God has revealed to us in his word. John Calvin warns us that where God is silent, we must resist further inquiry. You see, we can study and explain these wonderful doctrines as far as we can within the bounds of Scripture. But at some point, we must acknowledge that there is mystery. This must be the humble attitude of every serious student of the Bible. Deuteronomy 29 reminds us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now, in Ephesians 1, 4-6, the Apostle Paul is unapologetic when writing to the church of Ephesus about how God predestined them. He doesn't tiptoe around this difficult matter, but it is the heartbeat of his praise and doxology to God. If you remember, last week I mentioned how Verses 3 to 14 is actually one long sentence in the Greek. And Paul writes one long doxology here containing the reasons for which Christians must praise God. God has blessed his people with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And for Paul, that includes being chosen before the creation of the world. You see, Paul stretches our minds 
to the grand scope of salvation that reaches far beyond space and time. From eternity past, God has set his love and affections on his people. And Paul wants us to be captivated by awe and wonder of the, of the greatness of God and his eternal plan of redemption. There are three specific things that the Apostle Paul wants us to know about predestination from verse 4 to 6. First, the, the grace of predestination. Secondly, the glory of predestination. And thirdly, the goal of predestination. First of all, the grace of predestination. If you look with me to verse 4, Paul writes, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. This single verse, believe it or not, has sparked so much debate. A lot of ink was spilled trying to explain this one verse. A lot of disagreement here. There are some well-intentioned Christians that have a view of predestination that says, well, before the creation of the world, God looked into the future and he knew in advance who would believe in him. And God chose them for salvation. And so in this view, the ultimate condition for God predestining and choosing a person unto salvation is their foreseen faith. The faith that God saw in them that they will have in the future. This view is classified as mainstream Arminianism. There is another popular view of predestination that says that God predestined and chose not individuals, but a corporate body of people, the church. They point to verse 4 and say, well, it says he chose us in him, in Christ, meaning God chose Christ. And thereby, all who are part of his church are chosen and elected unto salvation. Of course, it's true that believers are chosen in Christ in view of Christ's atonement and redemptive work. But in this view, the ultimate condition for people or for, for God to include a person in election and unto salvation is still their individual choice to be part of God's church, is it not? This view is classified as corporate election. Now it seems that, that in both of these views, there is a condition that the individual person must meet in order for God to choose them. God's choosing of them is ultimately dependent on their foreseen faith, or God's choosing of them is ultimately dependent on their choosing of God. I think you know, we are all, as human beings, tempted to find a reason in ourselves 
for God to choose us, for God to love us. A reason in ourselves for why in the world God loves us. Did God choose us because of our foreseen faith and repentance and good works? Did God find us lovely because of our love for Him? You know, I, I find that one of the most fascinating things that women can ask their husbands is this question. Why do you love me? <laughs> right? It's a very difficult question. Why do you love me? Um, and obviously, we know all the right answers, right? We know what they're fishing for, right? Men, you know what they're fishing for, what they want to hear, what they should hear. You know all that. But if you really think about this question, it's, it's quite puzzling. Because if you answer, well, I love you because you love me, you're going to get the silent treatment. And if you answer, I love you because you are beautiful, you have beautiful hair, skin, and eyes, they might like that answer, but it just feels so shallow, right? If you love someone for their physical appearance, does that mean you will stop loving them when their hair turns gray and skin gets wrinkly and eyes get droopy? And if you answer, I love you because you make me feel special, you make me feel good, and you're so kind to me. It's a genuine, heartfelt answer, but it's also kind of self-centered, right? You love her for how she can benefit you and what she can do for you. I think the ultimate reason a man loves his wife is because he chose her. He could have chosen any other woman, and I'm sure out of the seven billion people in the world, there could always be another great catch. But he chose this one girl, this one woman, to be his wife, and he chose to spend the rest of his life with her through the highs and the lows. And granted, she can change. She can change as a person. People change all the time in, in appearance and personality because of some certain circumstances. But he must love her no matter what. He must continue to love her no matter what because he chose her. He wasn't forced to choose her, nor was he obligated to choose her, but he freely chose her and with pleasure. Likewise, God loves us because he chose us. He chose us. He wasn't obligated to choose us, he wasn't coerced to choose us. Why did he love and choose us and not others? Well, that is a mystery. But what we can know for sure is that we're told in verse 4 and 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so if you are a Christian today, 
You are loved by God. You are chosen by God. And while a man can be drawn to a woman for reasons he found her attractive, there was nothing attractive and good in us to entice God to choose us, for God to love us. Why would God love us? We were sinners and enemies of God, enemies of the holy God. And he, he didn't need us, and yet he loved us. He adopted us as his own children in Christ. In fact, he chose us before the creation of the world, before we existed, before space and time. He set his love upon us according to his pleasure and higher purpose. In verse 6, Paul calls this a glorious grace. Grace is the free and undeserved, unmerited favor of God. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. But if God's choosing of us is ultimately dependent on our foreseen faith or our choosing of God, or any other reason found in us, were we really saved by grace and grace alone? The Bible teaches us that sinners are saved by grace alone, sola gratia, meaning that salvation is not earned in any part. We don't earn it at all. But it is the free gift of God from start to finish. But if salvation ultimately depends on us and our foreseen faith or our choosing of God, the integrity of grace alone is compromised. You see, the heart of the matter in this debate about predestination is this. Does God choose us because we chose God? Or do we choose God because God chose us? Ask yourself this question, okay? If you are a Christian, did God choose you because you chose God? While all the other non-Christians in the world persist in their unbelief, was there something so outstanding and special about you that you were able to choose God? Or did you choose God because God chose you and set you apart before the creation of the world? Friends, I cannot stand here and tell you that I was chosen by God because I chose God, I loved God. No, in fact, I hated God. I had no real love or concern for God in my heart at all. But by grace, God changed my heart. God changed my disposition. God convicted me of my sin. God opened my eyes to see my need for Christ. God enabled me to believe. 
God gave me the gift of faith. God changed my heart to freely and willingly love him and choose him. You see, it was all a work of God, all by grace alone. Our gracious God has set his love upon unworthy and undeserving people like us before the creation of the world. The second thing that Paul wants us to know about predestination is the glory of predestination. God didn't tell us in Ephesians that he chose us and loved us before the creation of the world so that we can debate about it. No, we should be ecstatic. We should be grateful. We should be struck with wonder that before the creation of the world, God chose us, loved us unto adoption and salvation. For the Apostle Paul, the wondrous doctrine of predestination must lead believers to an outpouring of praise to God. It shouldn't produce controversy. It should produce praise and worship and adoration. Paul writes, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. What does it say next? to the praise of his glorious grace. In the act of predestining his people, what makes God's grace so glorious? What's so glorious about it? Well, it is glorious because it was an eternal act of salvation from eternity past, God knew us. He set us apart. This is absolutely beyond us. Too wonderful to fully comprehend. And it is also glorious because it was a definite work of salvation. God choosing an election is unchangeable, immutable. If he chose you, he chose you. He cannot unchoose you. Paul writes in Romans 8.30, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the unbroken and golden chain of salvation. If you are chosen, if you are predestined, you will be saved. If you are God's children... This is all too comforting and reassuring, is it not? To know that you will not be lost. No, you are destined for salvation. No matter what happens in the end, you will be saved. He chose you. He destined you. But most importantly, the doctrine of predestination makes God's grace so glorious because in predestining you unto salvation, God gets all the glory in salvation. Since you did not earn salvation in any part, 
since you did not contribute to the reason why you're saved based on your foreseen faith or anything else about you, since the reason why you're saved is not ultimately found in you or what you do, God gets all the credit and glory in saving you. And since you are saved by grace alone, not by your works or not by any conditions you met, it means God is the sole author of salvation from start to finish. And only as we are saved by grace alone, sola gratia, all the glory goes to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. You see, these two Reformation tenets go hand in hand. We cannot affirm one and not the other. And the final thing that Paul wants us to know about predestination is this. The goal. The goal of predestination. What Paul tells us in verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation, creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We were not chosen because we are holy, but we, we, but we were chosen to be holy. You see? We were made holy and blameless through Jesus Christ when we believed in him. The Son of God was pierced for our transgressions and sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus took all of our sins and he took it all to the grave. And he rose again, victorious over sin and death. To take away your guilt, to take away your blame, to make you holy. By virtue of our union with Christ, we receive all the benefits of his atoning sacrifice, and we are given his righteousness and perfection on our behalf. We are made holy through Christ, and this is the positional holiness that we are given. I call it position or positional holiness because this is God's stamp of approval and acceptance of us on account of Christ. That's the position that he gives us. But our new life in Christ must be lived out in practical holiness as well. We must grow in holiness and conduct our lives in a holy manner. J.C. Ryle describes practical holiness as the habit of being one mind with God according as we find in his mind described in scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. End quote. Ask yourself, are you growing in holiness and Christ-likeness day after day? Week after week, year after year, are you growing in holiness and Christ-likeness? 
Because in Romans 8.29, Paul writes, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, holiness or Christ-likeness is the goal of predestination. The doctrine of predestination is not a free pass for you to live your life however you want, in a fatalistic way, as if your decisions, your conduct, and your actions don't really matter. Of course they matter. That is perverted, and that is a distorted understanding of predestination. God determines the end, but also the means by which he will save you. Predestination, rightly understood, should set us on a passionate pursuit of holiness that we were destined for. Predestination, rightly understood, should make us most humble because we were truly saved by grace alone. Not because God saw anything special in us, but by his grace alone. Predestination, rightly understood, should make us grateful and generous people because we experienced amazing grace that fills our hearts with gratitude to God and charity to neighbors. Predestination, rightly understood, should make us bold and courageous evangelists because we know that even if our efforts and gospel sharing is far from perfect, God will use our efforts and missionary endeavors to effectively call his elect unto salvation. God's sovereignty in salvation is what makes evangelism fruitful and effective. Beloved church, I know this is a very difficult doctrine to fully conceive, especially if this is the first time you've heard it. But nevertheless, it is truly a beautiful and glorious doctrine of grace that captivates us to praise God. It must end with praise to God. Be greatly encouraged and comforted by this today. If you are a believer, he chose you. He chose you and he loved you before the creation of the world. And may God's predestining love deepen your understanding of his amazing grace. May it elevate your view of the glory of God and may it motivate you to live a holy life. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Lord, you chose us before we even existed, before the creation of the world. Like, how does that even fully make sense to us? It is too wonderful to fully conceive. Yet it is so glorious, so beautiful. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, God, for who you are, the infinite, eternal God. You chose us in Christ. You gave us a heart to freely and willingly choose you and love you.
to follow you. You opened our eyes by your Spirit to see the glory of Christ, our need for Christ, and salvation by Christ alone. And so, God, we pray, that God, that you continue to transform our minds. Help us to continue to understand these wonderful doctrines of grace. And ultimately, may you receive all the glory and honor and praise. We thank you, Lord. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.